The Church of the Living Dead is the title of the message this morning. There are times when it should be obvious, plain, that something is wrong. Bonner Research Group has a chart I'm going to show you right now entitled, How Americans Relate to Christianity is Changing from the Year 2000 to the Year 2020. There's a chart. There you go. Now, there's three lines on this chart. The red one, excuse me, the blue one represents, excuse me, I was right the first time. The red one represents practicing Christians. And that's a group of people that say their faith is very important to them. It uh, is every part of their lives. They're involved in churches, and they've at least attended a church service within the past month. These are people really engaged in their faith. Then you have uh, non-practicing Christians, and they identify themselves as Christians, but they're not as heavily involved, if you will. Their faith is not that really important to them. They may attend church on Easter, Christmas, but not really a what you would call a practicing Christian. Then, of course, you have the other line, which is the yellow line that's non-Christians, which is pretty much self-explanatory. They don't identify themselves as Christians at all. Now, in 2000, 45% of people that were surveyed qualified as practicing Christians. All right? Now, just one in four Americans in 2020, or 25%, are practicing Christians. That means that practicing Christians have nearly dropped in half since the year 2000. Now, of course, the question is, where did all those practicing Christians go? Well, half of them fell away from consistent faith engagement, from 35% up to 43%. People are not in a consistent faith engagement at all. The other half moved into non-Christian segment, and that grew from 20% in 2000 up to 30% in the year 2020. And this contributed to the growth of the atheist agnostic group. Now, back in 2003, that was 11% of people, but that has gone up to 21% as of 2018, and it continues to grow. Now, tied into that is the weekly church attendance from 1993 to 2000. There's the chart. Now, Church attendance has gone up and down, but from about 2012, about 3 out of 10 adults were, were attending. That kind of stayed there for a while, but after 2012, it dropped by 36% in 2020, then in 1993. So in 1993 versus now, there's 36, 36% fewer Americans that attend church on a weekly basis. Now, today, at this very moment, like ourselves, churches are meeting together. And let me remind you, if you're a believer in Christ, you are the church. You are the church, the membership. Not this building, not this location, but you. Or they have met. People on the East Coast, some of them may still be meeting. Most of them are already out. 
as I think about that, and in light of Barner's research, I must ask, what is going on? Why are so many walking away from the faith? Has the removal of the blue laws contributed to this? Or could it be that many churches were just lifeless, going through the motions? Is one reason people attended church in the past because there was nothing else to do? The blue laws, if you remember those laws, everything was pretty much closed on Sunday. You couldn't really go do much of anything. Now, I remember as a child, there was a store called Dark Drug. That's up on the East Coast. I live in Dale City, Virginia. And I remember as a kid when it was the first store that I can recall being open 24 hours a day. And, of course, 7-Eleven got its name from being open from 7 in the morning till 11 o'clock at night. And back when it first came on the scene, that was a very big deal. Or it's because there was really no spiritual life in their hearts as individuals, and those individuals make up the church. Now, what's going on in our society, I think COVID, blue laws, all this, we have to really take that into account to some degree. But the question still remains, what is happening What has the church done or not done? Now, Jesus spoke to Sardis concerning this issue. He was not interested in labels, but in life. He was not interested in or concerned about reputation, but in reality. Once again, the church in America today is the reputation not meaning up to the name. And here's what I mean by that. Reputation of what people think you are. Reality is what Jesus knows you are. Reputation is what people think you are. Reality is what Jesus knows you to be. With that, let's turn our attention to the letter. Introduction by talking about the city itself. It was located 40 miles southeast of Thyatira, the city of Sardis, it was most, one of the most glorious cities in Asia. However, much of its splendor laid in the past. It had attained great wealth through commerce and trade, and it was the first to mint gold and silver coins. It also had a large Jewish community dated from the 5th or 4th century B.C. That is what's left of the synagogue. It's also a part of a big gymnasium they have found, so it's a pretty good-sized population of Jews. Now, the city was famous because of its kings. Now, we know for twice the city fell perhaps three times, and we'll talk about that more in a moment. But there's a river called the Pactolus River, and it was discovered that it contained, contained gold dust. And this gave rise to the mystical history of Midas of Phrygia. He received the golden touch after going into that river. Perhaps, I don't know this for sure, but have you ever heard the, pray, the phrase, you have the Midas touch? Perhaps that's where it started when he went in the river and got gold dust on him. I do not know that for sure, but that's an interesting note. And uh, the citadel, or the fortress, of the city occupied a long ridge on Mount Moles. And that's what's left of it, just those little bitty ruins. I'm sure the mountains have changed over time, but that's what... That's where it was. And it's a modern-day Bozdag is what the mountain's called now, and it rose about 1,500 feet above the area below. Its approach was very difficult, almost vertical, except for the cross, the saddle of Mount Thomas, 
but it was still difficult. And because of that, the city gained the reputation of being invincible. How can anyone conquer the city if they can't conquer that fortress? And how are you going to conquer that fortress due its location? Well, there's a story. One night, one of the enemy troops from down below noticed that one of the guards on the wall of the city, his helmet had fallen off. So he watched as the guy went down off the wall and down this path to retrieve his helmet. And he went back. The path which the soldier went down to get his helmet was still steep, but you could do it. Now, down below where the rest of the army was, you could not see that path, but this guy saw it. He went back, got a group of his buddies, and he went back up the slope, the same one that that soldier went down and got his helmet, and they discovered that they were so overconfident of the safety in their fortress, they had left that completely unguarded. And guess what happened? They went in, opened up the gates, and threw over the city. They had the reputation and were so overconfident in their fortress that the city fell. Now, as far as uh, religious life, there is a special interest in death and immortality. Uh, most of it's focused on nature worship and fertility cycle and bringing life out of death. So that's just a snapshot of the city itself. Now, remember about its reputation. Keep that in mind as we walk through the letter. He starts in verse 1, to the angel of the church in Sardis, write this, he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. And that Greek word translated has is usually translated to have or to hold. It connotes or implies divine control. Now the purpose of this seems to be relational, that Christ maintains a relationship with the seven spirits and the seven stars. Can I just say something? Remember back in verse 1, I mean chapter 1, we saw how Christ was walking among his churches. Now remember the church is very important to Christ. The seven spirits is the sevenfold Holy Spirit of God. We see that back in chapter 1, verse 4. Christ has the power of the Spirit that's available to them. And he controls the seven stars. Which are the seven churches? Chapter 1, verse 20. He says, I know your deeds or your works. Now, normally, this would indicate what the church is doing right. However, this is not the case. It really details their weakness. I mean, look how their deeds or works are described. You have a name. You claim to be Christian. You have a name or a reputation that you are alive, but the reality is what? But you are dead. What an observation made by Christ himself. It is tragic, and tragic is really not a big enough word, that the only accomplishment this church has is what names itself, especially when the reality shows the name to be a lie. They had the reputation, but reality is they're dead. Hence the title of the message, The Church of the Living Dead. See, the problem is, once again, reputation. What people think you are versus reality, what Jesus knows you to be. And this church seems to parallel the history of the city in which they live. 
After all, the city had a reputation for being impregnable. You can't conquer the city. It had fallen at least twice, maybe three times. And by the way, there was an earthquake that happened in A.D. 17 that destroyed the city as well. Notice that in this letter there's no commendation. Everywhere else in the letters he has said, this is what I commend you for this, I commend you for that. You don't find that in this letter. And this is most likely due to the fact that the consequences is what really matters. I mean, the church was not brokering life, but death. And here is the parallel I want you to see. The prospects for the future of the church are as dim as those of the Sentinel's overconfident defenders in the history of Sardis. Just like they had overconfidence and the reputation of what they had and how we see the city overthrown. The basic thing is true for the church. You have a reputation for being alive, but the reality is you're dead. Look at the imperatives or the commands that occur in verses 2 and 3. First one in verse 2, wake up or be alert or show yourself to be watchful. They had to change their ways. They must prove that they are vigilant. They have fallen asleep spiritually and they must wake up. Time is of the essence. Matthew chapter 24, verses 36 and 37. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father alone. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. Do you remember the story of Noah? What was happening when Noah was building the ark? I'm going to paraphrase. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Do we not see that happening before our very eyes in the society and the culture in which we live today? He tells them another command, another imperative to strengthen the things that remain, which were about to die. See, the church overall was dead, but there was a remnant. The minority exhibited little life and must be strengthened. That Greek verb translated strengthen means to support or stand something on its feet. The idea is establishing something by making it strong. They're about to die. That's the reason for the desperate need of strength. The process of dying has been going on for some time. The result of this is right around the corner, which is death. They hardly had any time left and had to act quickly. The other imperative in verse 2. I have not found your deeds completed or perfected in the sight of my God. See, God is a judge, and he has found their deeds to be incomplete. Not just in quantity, but also, more importantly, in quality. After all, the aim, the purpose, the target, and the goal is to meet God's standards. And he says in verse 3, the other imperative, Remember what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. A continual recall and actualization of the truth they have been taught. They weren't not just to listen to it, but believe and act on it. That word keep means to guard, but also to obey. They must persevere and be obedient to the spiritual realities. And of course, they are to repent. Change their downward spiral and get right with God. They must return to a constant state of spiritual vigilance. 
They must have spiritual vigilance and maintain that if revival was ever going to come. Is that the reason we haven't seen revival in this country for some time? The church has fallen asleep. We're no longer vigilant anymore. If we want revival to fall, we have to be vigilant. We have to be spiritually vigilant. I don't know about you, but I want to experience the God that I read about in the Old Testament. I want to experience the God I read about in the New Testament. But that will never happen if the church is not vigilant. Look what he says in verse 3. A conditional statement. If you do not wake up, I will come like a thief. If the people of the church in Sardis fail to wake up from their slumber immediately, the Lord will come like a thief and they will not realize the hour in which he came. If they fail to maintain watchfulness, their fate will be the same as the city. Just as the overconfident city, unaware of the enemy, scaling its walls, fell when least expected, so too the church at Sardis, with its reputation for life, stood at the moment, impaired by a thief-like visit from God, which would result in its destruction. Here's the sad reality. Dead and dying churches are frequently, frequently oblivious to their condition. Jesus warns of the dangers of lack of diligence. Once again in Matthew chapter 24, verse 42. Therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. Can you see the parallel between the city and the church? The church was resting in its reputation, overconfident, and not maintaining diligence. We have some good news in verse 4. But, in light of all that, but you have a few people who have not sold their garments. Now this imagery is built upon one of the most, one of the major sources of wealth in that city, which was the wool industry. Now as a side note, they have found inscriptions in that area that caution anyone from appearing in soiled garments for worship of the gods, because if you did so, you would offend the god or gods that you're worshiping. Interesting side note, they found inscriptions talking about that. But unlike the garments they made, their spiritual garments are soiled, they're unwashed, they're unclean. They have made accommodations for their pagan environment. However, a few of the remnant had not made such accommodations. Look what he says, they will result with the promise they will walk with me in white. The promise is a new life, hence the word walk. Of purity, hence the word white. Now, Roman citizens wore white when celebrating military victories. We have symbols of wearing white. A wedding gown, a baptismal robe. Look what he says in verse 4. For they are worthy. Now, I remind you, this is not based only on any accomplishment of the overcomer. It is bestowed and imputed worth based on the sacrifice of the worthy lamb. Revelation chapter 12, verse 11. And they overcame him because of the blood of the lamb and because of the word of their testimony. And they did not love their life even when faced with death. He says they're worthy. They're walking appropriately. 
But that's all based on being dressed in white and being worthy of it. It's all because of the sacrifice of the lamb and his blood. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Exactly. In a city, in a church that has primarily known defeat, has only the bitter memory of a past triumph, how exciting it would be to think of myself as part of these few people that will be walking in white with Jesus because I am found worthy. Not based on anything I've done per se, but based on his sacrifice at the cross. See, this signifies not just victory, but purity, holiness, glory, and celebration. Look, he says in verse 5, He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments. They had refused to accommodate their Christian walk to pagan demands. They will receive the rewards that are promised to the overcomer. They will walk wearing white in Christ's triumphant procession. Look what he says. They are forgiven and kept secured. Why? Look at verse 5. I will not erase or blot out his name from the book of life. The erasure of a name meant exclusion from the commonwealth. When a person back then was convicted of a crime, their name was removed out of the civic register. The book of life contains the names and deeds of all who claim Christ. Only the faithful will say in it. Those who remain in unspotted. There are promised eternal reward in the presence of God. And can I just say a side note? We'll talk more of the book of life tonight if you like. What is that? What is it contained? How does your name get in there? Look what else he says. Not only will he not blot their name out of the book of life, he says, I will confess or I will acknowledge his name before my father and before his angels. The majority have not been ashamed of Christ. They haven't compromised their faith. The faithful have their name written in the book of life. Then it's confessed or acknowledged in the divine court. Matthew chapter 10, verse 32 and 33. Therefore, Everyone who confesses me before men, I will confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. Can I just ask a question like the elephant that's standing in the room? Let's just, let me just ask it. Are we dead or dying? I mean, that's what you guys are thinking right now, am I right? What a shame they would be have this great reputation. But let me just zero in a little closer to home. How about me? I'm a pastor, a preacher, chaplain, father, husband, grandfather. I may have the reputation. But what does Jesus really see when he looks at me? What is the reality? And although I do concern myself somewhat to what you guys think and what the world thinks, in the end, it's not going to matter, is it? In the end, there's only one thing that matters, reality. What a shame it would be to preach the word of God and to be a pastor, but yet really not know Christ. Well, Tim, why would you say that? Because one of the scariest verses in all, the, there's a lot of scary verses, by the way, in the Bible, but the one that haunts me the most is the one when Jesus is speaking about all these people do all these things 
They cast out demons. They do all this wonderful stuff in his name. And Jesus does not deny that they did them. He denies the fact that they ever knew him. That means if I'm not careful and I'm not vigilant, I can go about doing all these wonderful things, but then in the end, be dead because I never really knew Christ. The lack of spiritual vigilance is prevalent. Even there, may I say, common. I mean, it's easy to get wrapped up in the hustle and bustle of this life. And we are guilty of losing sight of the fact only Christ controls the stars, the churches. At the heart of being awake, watchful, and keeping alert is this. To acknowledge the supremacy of Christ in everything. Many churches, even denominations, have compromised their beliefs and practices, have abandoned their convictions by accommodating all the latest fads. We must live from the perspective of accountability before God. And once again, it comes back to this. Reputation, what people think you are, versus reality, how Jesus knows you, what he really knows you to be. So, are you a believer in Christ? Have you confessed him publicly before men that he is going to be your Lord and Savior? You can say, well, people, I don't, I'm not asking what people think has happened. I'm asking you to really search your heart and let Jesus search it as well and look at reality. Your reputation for being a godly man or a godly woman, but is that true? How about reality? How about as a church? I like to say we have a pretty good reputation in this community, at least up at the school. I know we do. And no, I don't know anything about what's going on. Okay, I'm just, let's take a check. How does that measure up to the reality of who we really are? And see, before we can point fingers and say this, it really starts with us because who's the church? Who are we talking about? Us. You and me. We are members of this local body. It's not some, the church is not somewhere out there somewhere. It's right here. We are the church. I don't know about you, but I want to be alive. I want to experience God. I want to see lives changed. I want to see people come to know him. And I know it's going to be difficult as time goes on. Jesus told us, right? Go back and look at some of the signs he told them, that the love of many will go cold. Wars and rumors of war, famines. We see that happening. We have mothers killing their children for Pete's sake. It's all around us. Time is growing short. But see, here's the thing. All this is available. You can repent. I can repent. We can repent. We can turn towards back to God if we need to. But time is so short. It's so short. Here are two great variables that we have no control over. The time of our physical death. Yes, we can take care of ourselves and be physical and go see doctors and such, but we don't know what's going to happen. I've known people who are 
seem to be great, in good shape, just got an a A-plus on their physical checkup, and the next day they were gone. And we do not know the time of his return. I will come like a thief, and you will not know the hour in which I come. That scares me. Because on top of my head, I know at least 10 people that need to come to Christ. What am I going to do about it? I'm going to end with this illustration. If I was a fireman and this building was burning and all you're trapped in it, and I sat outside trying to figure out some new equipment or looking at some new equipment I have, woo, this is great. Meanwhile, they're in here banging on the doors and windows, save us, save us. But I sat there and let you burn alive. What would you think of me as a fireman? Probably take me to court. I may get convicted of manslaughter at the least. But here's my point. Hell's real. People are going to go there don't know Christ. Are we going to sit back and just watch them go and say, oh, well, it's not my problem? Why should I worry about this or that person? Aren't you glad that someone cared enough about you to make sure you heard the good news? You did nothing to receive it. It's a free gift. You took it. We have an obligation to tell others who Jesus is. Not just by words, but by actions. Remember, Reputation is what people think you are. But reality is when you look in that mirror and you know exactly who you really are, and so does Christ. Those who measure up, if they don't, this is the time and this is the place you can take care of business. Please do so before it's everlastingly too late. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time we could come together and we thank you for your word. Father, we want to be found alive in you. We want to be vigilant and persevere, to be an overcomer. Father, I pray for everyone in the sound of my voice as your spirit moves. May each of us respond in obedience to you. Every good thing we have in this life is from you. Every blessing. Father, you rain down blessings upon blessings on us every day. Open our eyes, dear God. Help us to turn our eyes to you. Help us to see each other and, other and everybody else with your eyes. Help us to love as you love. And whatever you are calling us to do, dear God, I pray that you give us the boldness and the courage to take care of it. That we will boldly and unashamedly proclaim the name of Christ publicly by what we say, by what we do. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with me, please?